I'm Sheila Vashi, an investor at Basiset Ventures, an early stage venture capital fund investing in founders that transform the way people work. I'm excited to bring you Hypergrowth, the early years, a show that dives into the strategy, channels, and hires that kickstarted the growth journey of the most successful companies. Hello, everyone. I have been so excited for this day because we are welcoming Javier Ortega Estrada to the show or Javi, as I like to call him, because we're old friends, but uh, we'll get to that in a second. So Javi is currently the VP of Global Sales at Hopin, where he oversees the sales and solution engineering organizations, which make up a team of over 100 people. And there's lots more hiring ahead, I know, and we'll get to that in in a bit. Uh, Prior to Hopin, Javi was the head of North America Sales and a GM at Dropbox, where he worked for over seven years, including stints overseeing. Europe, the Middle East, and all of EMEA. And Dropbox is, of course, where I had the pleasure of getting to know you, Javi. And we are so thrilled to have you today. So welcome. Thank you very much for having me here, Shayla. It's hard to believe it's been eight years since since we met. Uh, it, it is hard to believe. <laughs> Time has just flown. Yeah, I'm super happy to be part of the series. And I hope we have fun today. Oh, we always have fun. I have. There's no doubt of that. Javi, you've had such varied experiences across companies in your career. Tell us a little bit about your career path and how you chose the companies that you did. Uh, sure. So w- when I finished college, I had no idea about what I wanted to do. So like many others, I went into consulting and I spent five years in different firms working across Europe and Latin America. And I loved it. But um I wanted to see something from beginning to end. So I tried to have my, my own company as well in the middle of that. And the end came sooner than I will have liked to. Uh, I think I made all the mistakes that you could do. I, was, I founded uh, together with, with some co-founders, a network for professional for creative professionals. And uh, I think we, we were there for a year and a couple of months before we actually went out of business. Huge learning. And it, the experience made me realize that I wanted to get into tech and that my skills were uh, transferable into, into sales. So I got exposed to Dropbox as a consultant because I was based in Colombia for a while and my colleagues were in Madrid and in Paris. And instead of using SharePoint uh, that was complex to use, <laughs> uh, I decided to use Dropbox with the team and I loved it. And I said, I want to work for these people. So I made it into Dropbox. It's one of the first hires in Europe where I spent seven years in, in different positions that brought me to the U.S. And eventually a year ago, I connected with, with Hopin and I felt in love with the, the company ethos and with the, with the vision that they had for improving share experiences. Uh, I think that the problem they were tackling at the time was very timely. This was in the middle of COVID. So, of course, um, events, virtual events, and getting people together and making the world feel smaller was was very relevant at the time. But I also knew that 15 years from now, the company will be around if executing well. And that the problem that they were solving was not only COVID-related. So I met the leadership team. Uh, love how fast they were going, love the bias towards action, and most importantly, love how customers were reacting to the technology. So I decided that it was time for me to to take a, a new gig, and uh, it's been it's been a blast for the last year. 
Well, your timing could not have been better at Hopin, especially over the past couple of years. Uh, Hopin has had an insane trajectory, and I believe I can say, you should correct me if this is wrong, I can say that it's one of the fastest growing software companies of all time. I, I, I think it's true. I think it's true. <laughs> uh, and and I, I always say that that's a vanity metric. Uh, we need to continue being the fastest growing company. But uh, yeah, it's true. We're, we're growing. Well, and that's the attitude that's going to keep you there, Javi. So I, I love it. So tell us a little bit about what it's been like since you joined. So it was uh, about eight or nine months ago. And uh, you told me at one point that you've added 700 people in, in that time frame already. So I'm sure it's just been crazy. So tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so it's, it's been uh, fast and furious. If I had to choose two words, those will be it. Uh, I joined a company of 100 people, and we are close to reaching 1,000 today. And probably by the time this goes live, we, we will already have over 1,000 people. Um, the recruiting team, it's been, it's impressive. It's, it's a world-class recruiting team. But yeah, it's, it's been super, super interesting. Every month, the company looks like a different company, but uh, it comes with a lot of challenges as well, because when you grow this fast, what works today will not work tomorrow. Things will break and you need to really be 10 steps ahead. And that applies to everyone from ICs to manager, executives. Thinking on scale has been the, the name of the game. So I'd love to dive more into that because it's so relevant for early stage companies who are on that type of growth path. When you joined, you said it was around 100 people. How did you prioritize what to tackle first from a sales perspective? And um, and how did you kind of build out your own roadmap for what to focus on? Sure. So this, this applies to everyone, as I say. We prioritize impact. And there's always a thousand things you can do. It's full of shiny objects, and you need to decide which one to go after. And uh, I guess that what we have to ask us every day is, what is a trade-off that I need to, to do in order to tackle an initiative? And what impact will this initiative have today and two quarters or three quarters on the line? For me, when I joined, I knew that hiring uh, was going to be priority number one, because without uh, more people, we couldn't reach uh, the goals that, that, that we had. And then also that we will have to work on scaling processes, processes and tools, because um, it was very, very necessary. We were in the infancy. So during this time or in the first few months, we chose and roll out tools uh, that will help us to get to, to the size where we are today and, and also probably where we need to be in the next couple of years. And yeah, all, all this while getting involved in deals, that is also a very important part of my job. I always joke that as a sales leader, you always need to be in touch with, with customers regardless of your title. Uh, so from day one, after trying to build the foundation, I've been also very close to customers. Yeah, that's great. I, I completely agree. Everyone has to be close to customers. I want to talk a little bit about the business model at Hopin and where your team, the sales team, engages with leads. I know it's a freemium model. So tell us a little bit about how the funnel works. So it's, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, the more events that we host, the more uh, attendees that, that we will have. The percentage of Buyers that have used Hopin in the past is very high. And recently we launched a freemium product that allows people to have meetings up to or, or events up to two hours long uh, and up to 100 attendees with most of the functionalities that, that, that we offer in our paid uh, SKUs. So the, the flywheel is working and we're, we're very proud, proud of that. We also uh, came at a very timely interjection of time uh, when we had like 10,000 people waiting to use the product from day one. But um, yeah, that's that's how we are today. 
Yeah, that, that's really interesting. So you do you effectively have two sources of free leads. One is people who have attended events. And then the second is from this newly set up freemium model. Is that the right way to think about it? Yeah, that would be correct. And then we have like web forms uh, um, yeah. to, to, to contact sales. And we recently created our revenue marketing team that by the way, is hiring like crazy as well. And they are also looking at new sources of leads for us uh, from content, um, webinars, um, group demos. Um, we are We're multiplying the sources. Yeah, that, that's great. And so how do you structure a team, a go-to-market team, when you have a funnel that's set up like this? Like, where do you, where is the first touch point for sales and how do you prioritize who they're reaching out to? So we have, first, we have a scoring system and depending on the scoring, some, some companies will go to a group demo and some other companies will go to talk to our SDR team. And we differentiate SDRs and, and BDRs because we are, we're very lucky in that regard and, and we have uh, people coming to talk to us, but we also have to to prospect. And uh, I say that it's mostly a uh, uh, bottoms-up motion, but we also have uh, tops and selling uh, mechanisms. But um, yeah, the SDR and BDRs uh, combined with revenue marketing are in charge of generating the demand on the top of the funnel. And then uh, we partner very closely to revenue ops to leverage the data that we have. And after we have more information on, on the prospect, the account executive will drive the, the selling cycle, supported by, by our SC team. So when you joined nine months ago, you essentially had, I'm sure, basically a clean slate. I know there was a team there, but you were kind of structuring the team from scratch. So who did you think about hiring first? And what was the support that you needed to put the go-to-market motion in place and scale it? So we, we yeah, we, we were hiring for the future from, from day one. We knew that we had an inbound motion, but at some point we'll need to have more traditional sale with a uh, top-down approach in order to go faster. And we started from the beginning hiring very, very different profiles. And we hired people that had seen scale and people that were not necessarily just coming from startups, but that had seen uh, enterprise and, and more rigor. Uh, but at the end of the day, what we were looking at is the same that we're looking today, that is hunger, curiosity self-awareness and, and no ego. I think it's it's very important when you go this fast that you hire people with short toes because, yeah, there is no such thing as, as a stepping on someone's toes when you're moving this fast. Okay, that's the first time I've heard that, and I love that. Hire people with short toes. <laughs> maybe translating directly from Spanish. It happens a lot. Oh, no, it works. I hope, I hope it you works. can understand the sentence, yeah. It makes complete sense. Yeah, I, I hope I have short toes. I think I do, actually, um, <laughs> literally and figuratively. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and digging into that a little bit further and maybe translating for earlier stage companies, when would you advise companies who utilize the free to paid model to start layering on that tops down motion in addition to the bottoms up that you're talking about? So I think you need to be ready to do a trade off between efficiency and and cost and, and also speed, right? Uh, if you don't introduce new motions, you're going to continue being limited by your own demand generation. But introducing a top-down motion will significantly increase your cost, probably extend your deal cycle, and you need to be ready to absorb that. Um, yes, hiring people to do outbound, having the expectations that productivity is going to be similar to to your inbound sellers uh, from from day one. It's probably unrealistic. So as long as you step into uh, the decision, knowing all the factors and you're fine with it, I think 
uh, the sooner the better. And how long, I mean, you, you've now seen this so many times, Dropbox and Hopin. How long would you say it takes to get that additional tops down motion up and running and working efficiently? Is there like a rule of thumb? I think it depends a lot on your deal cycle, uh, Shayla, because um, there are companies that uh, with, with lower ASP um, that can potentially close deals super, super fast. And another ones that will take longer. As an example, we, we, we started selling StreamYard right now um, as a B2B offering. And StreamYard has a super easy uh, terms and conditions. The, 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 the deal sizes are lower than, than, than hopping, and we're selling it very, very fast with a top-down motion. But uh, if we will have to start again selling hopping top-down, it will take us a little bit longer because the budget that companies need to set aside is larger. And we will probably have to be replacing some te- existing technology. So it, it, it really depends. But uh, I would say that a good rule of thumb is, is your deal cycle. I loved something that you told me earlier around measurement. Because the next question that always comes is, okay, how do you now measure the different go-to-market motions? And you said something around the fact that sales is really an art and a science. So I want to talk more about that and how that philosophy translates to the way that your team measures their efforts. Sure. So, uh, yeah, uh, I like to think on those terms, on the art and science uh, terms, because on one hand, you have the, the science piece. That is what everyone usually focuses on first. It's like the processes, the metrics, your forecast. Those are, for me, those are no negotiable. You put the work, you get it. And often people say that sales is a numbers game, and there's some truth there. Uh, but then there you have another part, that it's the part that I like to think more of as an art, that is how to read the room, how to manage silence, how to engage with your buyers, how do you know when to pull and when to push. Those are things that are more subtle, but th- that also can be, can be learned and taught. And as a seller, you need both. Uh, and one without the other one is not enough. But um, how do you measure them? The first one is very, very clear, how you do measure the science operational hygiene, like all these uh, metrics that, that everyone always tracks. Um, uh, and uh, th- those are pretty straightforward. You can see them on a dashboard. How you manage the other one is a little bit more difficult and how do you measure. And for me, that's when the sales managers come into play and when we leverage a lot of technologies like Gong or uh, Chorus, um, just to understand what's going on um, and, and to, to coach on those more subtle um, parts of the sales uh, profession. How has Zoom changed the the second part? Because how do you how do you even read the room when you're when you're virtual? So one one of the things like I encourage people to ask always is to try to get cameras on. Uh, it's it's common that people are tired of of staring at the camera and you jump into a sales call without a camera. A good recommendation is to ask people to turn on their camera. Of of course you have to be polite and sensitive and sometimes it will not happen anyway. But at least try to, to get to get people to to look at you. Then also you can feel the energy. I believe you can you can feel the energy over the phone. You can feel the energy over a PC, and you can really see when someone is disengaged because they are just not participating with you. They are not understanding what you are saying. And for me, it's obvious when someone is on email at the same time we're on a call. And it happens all the time, by the way, uh, within my team, outside of my team. Uh, I call people out and it's like, "Are you doing email or Slack while we're talking?" Um, <laughs> um, yeah. That's why eye contact is so important. The second someone stops making eye contact with me, I know they're they're on email or something. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's get into the metrics that you mentioned, the 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 metrics that everyone measures. 
going earlier stage and maybe pulling from your experience as a founder yourself, or even the early days of Dropbox and Hopin, what metrics would you suggest that earlier stage companies use to gauge both effectiveness of a fledgling go-to-market team or even product market fit? So I think the first thing that I, I look at is conversion from lead to opportunity, because you can actually get people to the door, but it's like how many are actually interested in what you're putting there that, that helps you assess your product market fit a little bit more down, down the funnel. Actually, when, when you already have customer base of any size, your NPS is going to be important because it's a great indicator on, on future success. And, and another one that early companies sometimes don't focus on is retention. I think that the sooner you focus on retention, the better, because leaky buckets become a problem sooner than you than than, than you expect. And every, yeah, it's it's way more expensive to uh, acquire a new customer and to retain it. So continue focusing on your existing base. It's it's always important. Let's say that you look at the lead to opportunity conversion and it looks low. What what questions would you be asking the team or or the broader company at that stage? Yeah, who are we talking to? Who are we targeting? Are we do we, do we have a clear ICP? Uh, what is the message that we are leading with? Um, are we actually relating to our customers, or are we just like listing features? Uh, and just go back to what you are solving for. That's great. Super helpful. I want to switch gears here and talk about some other great advice that you had given me uh, recently around tackling B2B sales. So common wisdom, or I don't know if it's common wisdom, but definitely something I've heard mentioned many times at at companies, even at Dropbox when we were there, is to go after the golden logos, the the star logos that you can point to, to say that so-and-so uses your product. And you had, you had a different take on the effort that goes into that process and the benefit. So I'd love to hear your take on whether that's worth it. Well, I love to be controversial. So uh, I'm not, not, not scared of saying this, but first of all, I will say that there is no universal truth and every company will have different circumstances. But I serve as an advisor for, uh, for a few startups. More often than not, they're bootstrapped for resources. And I sometimes get nervous when they tell me or when I hear that small teams are pursuing huge logos, like let's think of 14100. Yes, the reference, if you landed, it will be amazing. But you're going to spend so many cycles trying to, to get that deal in. You might forget what you are actually solving for in the first place. Or even if you close it, you might add more burden to, to different parts of the org that they can absorb at the moment. So large customers come with large demands. And if you have the team to support them, that's great. But if not, you should reconsider your strategy because if you do things right, you will get to them at some point. Timing is everything. But light, landing a lighthouse customer without forgetting your customer base and growth needs to be needs to be the way to to, to go. By all means, if if you're ready for it, go for it. But just know that you're going to spend more time and they're going to be more demanding than than smaller customers. But yeah, I, I guess it's the company that needs to understand the trade off. Uh, what are the positives and the negatives of landing a Fortune 100 at at the certain stage of maturity? and make the call. And as a seller, it's very hard because you fall in love with your with your your prospects. And if you have Fortune 100 in front of you and it's like, I'm working this, I can close it. And someone comes and tells you, I don't know if we're ready. It's going to hurt. But yeah, I think especially early on, 
And always, actually, uh, you need to put a company first and think on more teams than just a sales team. I feel like you might be speaking from experience on this one. <laughs> Definitely not with my company. Definitely not with my company. Uh, okay, okay. The, the one I founded, I, I wish we had some customers. We didn't even get that far. Reflecting on your incredible career, what were some either mistakes that you made or things that you wish that you had done differently? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about one that comes to mind right now. I think it's very timely after, after the Olympics. And it's, it's, it's related with mental health. And it's, you know, when you're part of a, of a company that is running towards an IPO or, or you are in hyper growth startup, uh, the pressure dials up every day. And you need to remember to prioritize yourself mentally and physically. Uh, the well-being of everyone is, is very, very important. And at some point, I was very reckless with, with myself. Uh, and I remember it perfectly. And I was just working all the time around the clock. And that's, that's, that's good. Like, you need to work. But you need to ca take care of yourself, too, because otherwise you cannot take care of your teams neither or the people around you. So ever since I've embedded routines of sports and meditation into my days, is to make sure that I don't burn out and that I'm able to face my career as a marathon instead of a, of a sprint. And I have a post-it now in my laptop. I wish, I wish you could see it. It's just a Latin phrase that says mens sana in corpore sano. Uh, that means uh, healthy mind in a healthy body. Uh, just as a reminder to, to, to take care of myself and breathe sometimes. You're going to have to send me a photo of that post-it after this so I have it. <laughs> Maybe I'll write one of my own with the same thing <laughs> on it. I, I have to say, this is my favorite advice uh, of any that we have received on this show, because it's one that's so easily forgotten. But I agree in you know post-Olympics, one that's very top of mind, I, especially in this market with COVID, there's a lot going on. What, what else do you do to preserve balance? And, and how do you promote that to your team in the face of you know what I'm sure is a crazy, hectic day? So I push people to work async. Like we work across so many different time zones and uh, I am fine with people not reading Slack life. You shouldn't use that as a real life communication system all the time. And if you're online, do it, but put blocks to do that. So put blocks to, to, to go out and, and go for a walk. Make sure that you are spending time with your family and that when you are disconnected, you are fully disconnected. Like if you go for dinner, go for dinner uh, with your partner or with whoever you want to go and like leave the phone behind for, for a couple hours. Nothing is going to happen. Uh, the company is going to be still here when you come back and make sure that you are taking care of the things that are important in life. Great advice. I'm going to ask you for one more piece of advice. What advice do you have for founders who are building their companies and looking to hire early leaders or team members on the go-to-market side? What, what should they be looking for first? Ooh, this, is, this is a good one. Um, I would say hire people that can work in an ambiguous environment, but that are also thinking on a 10x scale future. I think it's very necessary to be scrappy when you are uh, starting and you need to be a firefighter and wear different hats, but um, you also need to keep in mind that you're building something that is going to grow and thinking on the future scale that you might have and putting process around that, that won't cripple your growth down the line. So yeah, hire people that are flexible, that want to roll up their sleeves, that are entrepreneurs, uh, but also that can think on, on process and tools early on. 
Awesome. Thank you for your for your advice, Javi. Now we're going to get into what is my favorite part of the show, which is the fire round. This is where I get to shout questions at you and you get just 10 seconds to respond and it's whatever is top of mind. No time to think. All right. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. What Question number one, what's your favorite sales technology? Demo stack. I like what these guys are building. I think SaaS needs a better and more, more robust uh, demo process. I like that one. Question number two, tell us a secret sales hack that you've used. I'm a Sandler fan, so maybe this is not a hack, but I like reverse a lot. Uh, and I do it very often with customers because at the end of the day, it's more important to understand why they're thinking what they are thinking than them hearing me giving them an answer that makes no sense. Okay, I have to ask you a little bit more about this one before we continue. What, sure. what, what is that? Describe it. So that will be when like a customer asks you a question and you actually answer them with the same question. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm going to have to see if I can try that one. That's, that's I, interesting. I do, it, I do it very well because I, I'm, I play dumb well and uh, <laughs> I have no, no problem uh, just saying, what do you mean by this? Why is this important for you? I have no problem at all. Well, you can save that. I'm going to ask you a question about that, about your superpower. Maybe that's your superpower. But, but first, question number three, what's the most helpful resource you found on growing a company? Human capital, talent. I like it. Okay, here's question number four. What's your superpower? I am very positive and I like to think with a positive mindset always. And you are I play dumb, And I play dumb very well. You can... You can <laughs> I will say you are incredibly positive. It is very delightful. Okay. This, this last set of questions will, um, is more of a kind of overrated, underrated kind of thing, but I'm just going to ask you overrated because it's more fun. What's, what's the most overrated collaboration app? Zoom. Oh, burn. What's the most overrated social media app? Snap. That's a good one. Finally, what's the most overrated trend in tech icos and um yeah i, I would say icos <laughs> i don't understand them very well <laughs> i don't think anyone really does yeah. javi thank you so much for all of the insights that you've shared today you've told us about your amazing career what your trajectory has been at Hopin and, and how you thought about prioritization for what to tackle first. And then you told us about how to think about hiring a sales team and, um, and what early stage founders should be looking for. So we've learned a lot today. Where can people find you after this? I think LinkedIn is probably the safest bet. Javier Ortega Estrada. I don't think there are many of us with such a long name. So feel free to reach out, happy to help. You're one of a kind, Javi. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in to hear from our amazing guest today. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to keep in touch, please follow me on Twitter at Sheila Vashi or shoot me an email at Sheila at basisset.ventures. And if you want to hear more, we'll be posting episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud every week. So check it out. See you next week.